Every day, scientists are learning more and more about how human brains work and how many of us don't fit into the old-fashioned understanding of how brains should work. But a lot of ideas about parenting and familial relationships still need to catch up to the reality of human variation. Neurological differences are natural, profoundly valuable parts of being in a community together and in being part of a family. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your journey, I am here to explore with you. We are all in this together. Welcome to Neurodiverging. Welcome back to Neurodiverging. Neurodiverging is dedicated to helping neurodiverse folk find the resources we need to live better lives as individuals and to further disability awareness and social justice efforts to improve all of our lives as part of the larger world community. If you're interested in learning more, please click the subscribe button to make sure you're notified when there's a new episode. Take a look around at neurodiverging.com to see previous episodes and blog posts, and please check us out on Patreon to support this podcast at patreon.com slash neurodiverging. For just as low as a dollar a month, you can get access to patron-only perks, including after shows, behind-the-scenes content, discounts on my coaching and other products, and more. Speaking of Patreon, I want to give a very, very grateful thank you to Zach, David, Teresa, Sarah, Anon, Teresa, Outstronaut, Clara, and Marty. Thank you all so much for supporting this episode of Neurodiverging. Today, I am very happy to be talking with Kate McNulty, who is an autistic certified Gottman therapist, a certified AASECT sex therapist, and a licensed clinical social worker. We're discussing her newish book, Love and Asperger's, Practical Strategies to Help Couples Understand Each Other and Strengthen Their Connection, which came out in October 2020. Love and Asperger's is a practical guide to maintaining a loving and communicative relationship between people with different neurotypes. Kate lays out some common problem areas that mixed neurotype couples may face and gives direct and clear support to working through them together. Unlike other autism-focused relationship self-help books I've read, Love and Asperger's doesn't assume that the problems in the relationship come down to the autistic person being, quote, too autistic. Rather, she focuses on supporting both individuals to get to know each other and their own needs better and to communicate together to get everyone's needs met. I've already recommended Kate's book to several of my life coaching clients, and I'm so thrilled to be able to offer this episode to you. We're discussing common relationship trouble points Kate's seen in her 20 plus years of therapy practice, what's up with the word Asperger's in the title of the book, and why self-identification is not only valid, but a necessary tool for so many of us. Enjoy. Kate, welcome to Neurodiverging. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you making some time to meet with me. I'm so happy that you're here. Um, I know that you have recently put out a book, which I definitely want to talk about in a little bit, but um, you're a social worker, a therapist, you're autistic, you're now a published author. Congratulations. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and what your current focus is in your practice. 
Sure. I uh, have been doing uh, therapy for many years and had a long career working in emergency rooms, curiously enough, before I went into private practice. Uh, And I just saw such a broad array of people in the emergency room setting. It fascinated me, but it was time for me to be self-employed. So uh, I started this private practice and quickly began getting referrals for couples. So it was apparent that there was a real need and I decided I wanted to get serious about helping couples. So I got trained at this research-based institute in Seattle, the Gottman Institute. And um, curiously quickly discovered couples therapists don't think a lot about sex, which I thought was really (laughs) odd. So I also pursued training as a sex therapist and uh, have been seeing all kinds of people since, but When uh, one of my children, I have grown kids, they're in their late 20s. One of my kids started talking about autism about eight years ago. And I just dismissed it. I just thought, oh, come on, you're not autistic. Are you kidding me? I know what autistic looks like. It's some guy like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, right? But I just had the stereotypes in mind. And once I started reading about it, it was so striking and explained so many things about my family background and me, I just felt compelled to learn more and got pretty, um, you know, specialized in working with autistic adults. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I'm interested in several parts of what you said and trying to figure out which to, which to get at first. Um, I think a lot of people that I've talked to who've come to their autism diagnosis a little later in life have that, you know, somebody around them brings it up and we all think of the stereotype of the, you know, um, sort of repetitive motion um, simming kind of white man and who's highly intelligent and maybe technology focused. And then uh, we read more about women and autism and it's like, oh, it, it's me. So that's really mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's also so common for parents to kind of come in through the side door and it's all because Absolutely. something's going on with their child. Yeah. And then you get this um, revelation yourself of, oh, there's so much to learn about my life and my history that can be viewed through this lens. Yeah. I, I worry sometimes that I would have never found out if my son was not autistic, that I would have never come to that in myself because mm-hmm. there wouldn't have been the push to learn more about it right. and to get that wider understanding of the diversity in autism in the mm-hmm. kind of range. And, oh, <laughs> it's made such a difference in my life to know. So, and you've written, your book is kind of a a mix of your knowledge of autism and your interests there. And also obviously your relationship therapy practice. And I know I read it and it's great. It's called Love and Asperger's. Would you tell me a little bit about, or I guess tell the audience a little bit about what drove you to write on this topic of, of kind of love and autism? Yeah, the the book is an attempt at giving people some practical guidelines about feeling connected to their partner, even if your brain works very differently from theirs. Uh, And I wanted to draw from the couples therapy training and experiences I had, but use this framework of being autistic or having an autistic partner to write about the patterns that come up for people and the the kinds of typical complaints that people bring to my office, but to reach a broader audience. So that was the the reason that I wrote the book. That's really fantastic. I have seen other books 
that target that sort of goal of giving practical advice to a mixed neurotype couple, but a lot of them are just not very practical or there's so much from the neurotypical person's point of view of making the autistic right. person the uh -huh. quote unquote problem in the relationship. And what I really enjoyed about your book was that it really did bring up both sides and give both parties really take both of their needs into account and both of their what they need out, out of the relationship into account in a very mm -hmm. kind of equivalent way, which I just really appreciated because I often read relationship books and feel like they're trying to nicely say that the autistic person needs to change for the neurotypical person. And that can be really frustrating to read. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be very disengaging as an autistic reader to have that message. And there are just so many misrepresentations of what we are as autistic people. And there's, um, such a, uh, you know, th these theories are obsolete, these ideas about like theory of mind and things like that, yeah. or the male brain syndrome, you know, these books still show those ideas, yeah. but they've been clearly disproven as we get more autistic people sort of ascending in academia and getting in positions to do research. Yeah. We see that uh, these concepts are just ideas that somebody made up based on the observations from the outside of an autistic person and they do not represent the internal experience of autistics so having couples therapists then trying to write from this gyration viewpoint of like okay here's what's going on with your autistic partner it's just kind of ridiculous so I hope we're going to be moving toward a time when there are more autistic clinicians and more therapists can recognize that they're autistic or more people will get trained to be therapists because we really have been at a disadvantage in terms of seeking services and getting a true neutrality from the therapists who are trying to work with couples. Absolutely. I have, I was arguing with somebody, arguing nicely with somebody on Instagram yesterday about the male brain theory, because as, as you said, there's so much sort of unfortunate junk that <laughs> is, is has been disproven that we have evidence against, but it's still kind of floating out there. And the, when you're first starting to learn about autism, these are still the theories that tend to come up in the Google search, you know, if you're coming at mm -hmm. it from a, a layman's point of view. Um, and it's really frustrating, especially when you're in a relationship with a partner where you want it to be a, a mutually supportive kind of engaged relationship. And uh, your partner is Googling autism and coming up with this stuff, you know, cause, and, and maybe their therapist is supporting them. Mm -hmm. The Cassandra syndrome, please excuse me from even bringing it up, but oh, come on. Well, it's this idea that the, the, it's often portrayed as the wife who's married to an autistic man is in this awful position of being burdened with this robot who never expresses affection. And it's just such a, She's making such a sacrifice to tolerate this person. So I just think, I'm sorry, but get out of here with that junk. You know, yeah. it's not helping anyone. This leaves us yeah. feeling the autistic person's the problem and there's nothing to be done about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think I've heard that name for it before, but I've definitely, you know, mm -hmm. kind of encountered that stereotype of what it must be like to be in a relationship mm -hmm. with an autistic person. Yeah. And that's really... Like it's really damaging to both sides because how is the wife in that situation mm -hmm. supposed to overcome that stereotype for herself to really see her husband? And how is the husband supposed to feel fulfilled? You know, 
Yeah, I mean, when I started doing couples therapy, I I decided I'm going to take this very seriously because people come in to see a therapist and they're usually on the verge of making a life-changing decision. Absolutely. By the time they get in your office or on your screen nowadays, (laughs) we have a responsibility to, uh, you know, come from a stance of um, supporting both people equally and not biasing what's going to happen in the therapy room for the couple. Yeah, absolutely. And I do, I know it is um, not ethical for a therapist to recommend staying married or divorcing, but I feel like a lot of therapists do mm-hmm. see a mixed neurotype couple and be like, oh, this is a bad match. You know, why are you with an autistic person? Mm-hmm. And that's really, really frustrating too. So like you said, getting more autistic therapists trained and in practice is a really great way to offer more support to mixed neurotype couples. Would you be willing to talk about, you mentioned that there are sort of recurring um, or issues that come up often between this kind of couple where one person is neurotypical and one person is autistic. Um, and it, your book obviously goes into those in depth. So folks, you should read the book. I'll put a link in the notes below. But um, are there some that you'd be willing to talk about briefly, I guess, as kind of maybe the most common or like what's the one most common you see or the two of types of couples who come in? Sure. Yeah. Uh- the the themes of um, wondering uh, why doesn't my partner go out and do things with me? Mm-hmm. Like I want to go see my family for a cookout, or I want to go to a, a concert, or us to try a new restaurant. And so the narrative person is often wondering why were they so fun when we first started dating, <laughs> but now they're a, you know a stick in the mud at home, mm-hmm. and I can't budge them. But often this is for sensory reasons, uh, either overstimulation, overwhelm, or life is going at too fast a pace. And so recognizing that the autistic person wants to be with their partner and wants to do things with them often, but their choice of venue or the kind of recreation that they prefer might be very different from the neurotypical person over time. And so you have to, as a couple, figure out like, how do we pace ourselves and not add too much and not run too many errands or, you know, return too many things to the store or whatever, <laughs> this mad dashing about that drains the autistic person. Instead, how do we map out our week mm-hmm. so that we know if we want to go on a date Saturday night, we need to have a low key Thursday night and then have something planned so that. Uh, everybody feels ready and at their best because often the, you know, the hesitation that the autistic person feels isn't like, I don't want to be with you. or I don't want to do things with you. It's, it originates from a position of, I want to be at my best when we're together Mm -hmm. and I know what I need and I need the downtime as a precedent for doing something that's more noisy or puts me in a position where I have to make more decisions or has me dealing with traffic, you know, things like that are factors we have to account. When a couple comes into your office, is it often a case of the neurotypical person needing help understanding what their autistic partner needs? Or do you have also autistic people coming into your office and having trouble? Is there a difference in the kind of issue that a neurotypical partner is going to bring to you versus what an autistic partner is going to bring to you. Does that make sense? I think about how there's such a wide range anyway, if we're just talking about autistic people, Mm -hmm. Uh, some autistic people do not get the interoception, the internal signals that they need to know whether they're hungry or cold or 
maybe have a lot of language for how they feel, mm -hmm. like aren't so articulate about their emotions. Other autistic people are hypersensitive and have much more contact with their inner world and can even obsess about their feelings or scrutinize their feelings quite closely and name them to somebody else. So we're talking about such a wide array of people that it's very difficult to generalize when even when we use these terms. Mm -hmm. um, but I think about, uh, yeah, the position of the neurotypical person sometimes is from, from this more kind of pop psychology place of like, hey, I've got this person who needs to be shored up or patched together. Can you fix them for yeah. me? Which I, I understand why that might happen. But, uh, you know, my job is instead to kind of call the neurotypical person's attention to some behaviors that probably are attempts to engage or cooperate or show affection mm -hmm. that are sailing past them Yeah, because they don't know what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and autistic people have lived in a neurotypical world for their whole lives. And I think often we're able to understand what the neurotypical person is trying to do, even if it's not something we can engage with. Whereas sometimes mm -hmm. neurotypical people don't have the ability to see what the autistic person is trying to reach out. And mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you work with a lot of autistic autistic couples too? Or do you mostly work with couples where one person is one kind of brain and one is another? Well, I mean, autistic pairs of people also still have all the same sorts of problems that other couples might. Mm -hmm. So I see some of them, but the, the patterns are not as strong. The trends are not as evident as they are with the neurotypical differences that are the, the neurotype differences mm -hmm. that I wrote the book about. No, that makes sense. I was just curious. Thank you for indulging me. Um, mm -hmm. And... <laughs> <laughs> what are, again, obviously each couple is different. Each couple is coming in with different backgrounds and different needs, but do you have any recommendations for sort of what, what's the first thing a couple should do when they're having a breakdown in communication or trouble that they think might be related to neurotype? Are there some like go-to strategies that they can, can lean on? Well, one thing that I think people underestimate is the power of stopping the power of just taking a break and being able to say, I'm too upset to talk right now, or I don't think we're having a useful conversation. Can we try again in a little while? I mean, that's one of the, ther the therapy techniques that we use and it's just so powerful. And it's so, uh, it allows the conversation to take a completely different turn. Mm -hmm. People will just take a break. But the trouble is we're asking our brains to do something that they're not wired to do. You know, when we get in a compelling argument with our partner or we're having tension with them, because our urge is to connect, we want to push ahead and we want to keep saying it again or saying it louder or saying it a different way and seeing if we can be understood. Mm -hmm. So it's asking a lot to do, but it's really a hugely helpful behavior to just know how to take a break. And another thing we've learned from the research is that a break should be a minimum of 20 minutes, not two minutes. Oh, that's so helpful. So people need time to compose themselves, step away from the conversation, gather their resources, and then come back fresh. We really need to give ourselves a decent chance when there's a tense discussion going on. Yeah, that 20 minute number is remarkable because I don't think I've heard that before or seen that piece of research, but that is a much longer time than I feel like people are inclined to 
Um, like when I need a break, I will take 20 minutes for sure, or 30 minutes or an hour. But um, I feel like for neurotypical people, especially who aren't used to needing that downtime, I mean, I know neurotypical people need downtime, but there's a difference in that recharge period. And 20 minutes mm -hmm. can feel like a really long time when you feel very possibly anxious or, or concerned about yeah. something that you're having a disagreement about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we also suggest that couples map out a plan about how to do this before they're in yes. the middle of a fight. It's not going to be effective and your partner's probably going to get really annoyed if you just say, look, I'm walking away. I can't talk mm. about this anymore. That's not the way to do it. Have a plan of action and have some kind of mutual agreement that, hey, this is you know fair game for anybody to do this when we need to. And this is our shared understanding. And it's for the purposes of having improved communication, not to abandon anyone or, or cut anyone mm -hmm. off. Yeah, that does sound really important. So to have a structure in place ahead of time before the emotions get high and so that everybody's on the same page mm -hmm. and it's not taken as a personal. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I'm yeah. sure that will help a lot of people who are listening. And then I wanted to talk with you a little bit. Can you tell us more about why you called the book, what you called it, Love and Asperger's? The publisher chose the title for this book and they did it based on market research mm -hmm. because most people who are looking for books about adults are going to look up the term Asperger's. That's just still, even though it's not diagnostically precise anymore, it's not accepted. It's still just the way people talk about this trait. And uh, people who are thinking about autism think of children. So, so we didn't want to try to write a book about adult relationships with the title autistic uh, yet. Maybe in a few years, there'll be more common recognition that that's the word most people mm -hmm. use. But I also think uh, a lot of people who still identify with that word Asperger's, they probably were diagnosed or came to self-diagnosis maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that there's a lot of um, people sometimes have an identification with that term, even though it's become outmoded, because it means something special to them to belong to a group. Mm -hmm. It's important to belong and to have some sense that there are other people like you. And so I just think people are arriving at this understanding about language pretty recently. And I, I feel sad when I see um, people tearing each other down about it. Of course, I don't want to ever be identified with any Nazis or anything horrid like that, but um, some people still find this Asperger's word meaningful to them. And, I'm just figuring everyone gets to make their own choice about this. And uh, it's, it's fine if they're not ready to um, identify as autistic. I also think, though, there's a way that if we don't use the word autistic, it's like saying those of us who um, can manage a job and who speak are a different breed from the yeah. rest. And we're not like the autistics. And I don't want to be in that position myself. I think... I'm much more like other neurodivergent people than I am neurotypical people, no matter who they are. Yeah. Thank you. That's really helpful. That word, like, yeah, that term Asperger's is really complex right now. And like in current popular culture, um, because yes. obviously it is associated with Asperger himself, but it was used as a term for many autistic people for a very long time. Uh, research mm -hmm. on autism has kind of moved us along and how the diagnostic manual is changing every couple of years changes the identity of whole groups of people in ways that maybe the people who are 
writing the manuals don't think about when they, <laughs> you know, are trying to, um, which makes sense, mm-hmm. but it, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it can be hard when you take your identification um, from a discipline that is constantly evolving and constantly moving on the target of, of where we are. So, right. Yeah. It is something I noticed because, you know, you don't see that term so much anymore, but it is, like you said, a whole lot of people still use that. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize there was this dynamic between people, like if they're going to Google or of older ages are more likely to look for Asperger's than autism. That's really interesting. Just in the beginning of this interview, you mentioned that you were self-diagnosed after your child brought it to your attention that autism might run in the family. And as a therapist and somebody who's worked in this field for a long time, do you have thoughts about sort of whether self-diagnosis is a valid approach or why it may or may not be against being formally diagnosed with by a team? My opinion is that self, uh, I guess, self-identification or self-diagnosis, however you want to term it, is completely legitimate because our professional Mm. capacity to diagnose people is so poor. We have such um, skewed testing instruments that we use, and they're normed for um, children and uh, white people and uh, men. So they're not necessarily going to ask the right questions, even if you go in for formal diagnosis. And I've had this conversation Mm -hmm. with many psychologists who do testing for a living. So I'm not expressing isolated opinion here. I think the mental health profession has a tremendous amount to do to catch up with the population of adult autistics who are out there hollering saying, we want services and here are our needs. And, uh, you know, there's just a kind of information gap that we have to transcend about how to help people in effective ways. And, you know, having conversations with people about diagnosis and the idea that you have to go in and pay thousands of dollars to get confirmation of something that you know darn well yourself you know for many of us it was like I've never felt so Mm -hmm. clear and definite about anything in my life uh I just think it's unfortunate that people feel like they have to have the mantle of authority of a mental health professional for this I think too though that if you are concerned that you're going to need your legal rights protected if you need accommodations at your job or if you are applying for disability, like then those are a must have. You need a formal diagnosis for those situations. But if you want to just look at the writings of adult autistics, figure out how much overlap there is between their life descriptions and yours, or if you want to meet with a mental health professional who knows about autism Mm -hmm. in a deep way for a time or two, you know, a few times to just confirm your diagnosis, I think that can be very useful. But this idea of gatekeeping seems like an unfortunate one because we're such a small percentage of the population. You know, we're maybe 2% of the world from what we can tell so far. I think we're much more powerful united than we are scrabbling about who gets to call themselves this name or not. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's hard for me to see. I wanted to ask you, actually, um, I have heard the folks who are arguing against a self-diagnosis or self-identification being valid seem to feel like some damage could be done from folks coming in who aren't quote unquote actually autistic and saying they are autistic. From my perspective, the likelihood of that happening at all is just so low because for me, it feels like if you're going to claim autism, you must identify it. Like how many people can there be who feel like they're autistic and then wouldn't qualify quote unquote 
from a professional, mm-hmm. like if we had the right tools to diagnose, I'm saying, obviously the tools right now are, are not really that functional. So from a, a therapist point of view and somebody who's worked with autistic people for a really long time, do you have any opinion on that? Do you feel like there are neurotypical people like sneaking into the autism community, pretending to be autistic, like that's an actual thing we have to worry about? I share your view that that's highly unlikely. And I think that um, if anything, there probably are people who have spent perhaps long times in the mental health system getting misdiagnosed. And if anything, I felt sad once I started to read and understand autism better. How many clients could I have helped better if I'd had this template to apply, if I'd had this framework to share with them and had this understanding to help them manage their lives more capably or recognize certain limitations and work Mm -hmm. with them. Uh, If only I had known, you know, I look back and I can think of specific clients who I wish I'd had this concept to share with them. I just didn't know about it. So I think that, um, you know, in theory, maybe we're even a larger number of people than we recognize because so many of us are running around being told we have trauma or borderline personality or oppositional defiant or, uh, you know, there's, a litany. there's just such yeah. a number of possible directions things can go diagnostically. I am hoping, you know, maybe in 10 years, we'll have better normed tests that are more diverse and more useful. But I know that right now, the testing process that we can offer people is very, um, it's, it's very scant information that we're going yeah. on. I have met especially so many women. I'm sure that there are men who have been misdiagnosed as well, but I've met especially so many women autistics who were, before they came to realize their autism, were diagnosed with panic disorders, with depression or generalized anxiety, and you know the much more serious ones, like you said. And you know, folks who thought they had a panic disorder and then it turned out to be a sensory processing issue and just nobody in the medical mm-hmm. field that they were able to access knew enough about sensory processing to point that out to them. And that is so frustrating just on their behalves to have had to, for so many folks mm-hmm. to have to go through that experience. So. Yeah, I think there are more and more neurotypical therapists who are starting to realize they have some catching up to do. And I certainly believe there's hope, but as we're talking, I think it's, it's a bit of a looking for a needle in a haystack to find a therapist who's got a neurodiversity affirmative approach and who really is very well-informed. You just, you have to be very motivated and tenacious and have the resources to find someone. Do you have any suggestions for individuals um, who are looking for an autistic friendly therapist or somebody who's familiar as to how they can find that needle in the haystack? I think going into the uh, autistic groups that are online on Facebook or Twitter, I don't, I'm, I'm not using Instagram so much for this, but I do think just peer referrals and asking around in your communities or on Reddit, uh, you know, Reddit conversations to just find mouth to mouth referrals is the best way to do it because people will speak from their own experience and then you have some basis for understanding what to expect. Thank you. I wish I had a better referral. I know several groups of people who are developing directories Mm -hmm online but you know it's a substantial project it is takes time and money so maybe next year we'll know more no that's helpful that's what i usually tell folks too but it's 
mm-hmm. almost kind of good to know that I haven't been missing a big resource, but I hope that right. the ones that are developing mm-hmm. will get there. Yeah. It is- Fingers crossed we're on our yeah. way. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Neurodiverging. Please check out the show notes linked below for information on Kate's book, Love and Asperger's, as well as information on Kate's therapy practice. Again, if you're interested in the show continuing, please check out patreon.com slash neurodiverging and support a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars a month to keep the show moving. Thank you so much. As always, please remember, we are all in this together. friends, Danielle Sullivan here. I have an invitation to neurodivergent women who have been working to understand themselves and their neurodiversity, but are still getting sucked into overwhelm when negotiating family, friends, work, and school during the busy Christmas and New Year's season. Myself and Jacqueline Corsi, two experienced certified neurodiversity coaches and neurodivergent individuals, will work with you through a six-week live group program to drive off burnout while staying connected and grounded in your values instead. We'll be teaching our highly targeted neurodiversity and trauma-informed strategies, which are evidence-based and have already supported over a 100 similar clients to resolve burnout and reduce future overwhelm. The program runs live virtually on Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time or 7 p.m. Eastern Time between November 9th and December 21st, skipping Thanksgiving week. If you're interested, please send an email to neurodiverging.coaching at gmail.com to Danielle to see if it's a fit. I'll send you the program description, ask you a couple of questions to make sure it's a good match for your specific needs, and let you know how to enroll if it is a good fit. Enrollment closes when we're full or on November 4th. Our first meeting is November 9th. I hope to see you there.